Hey! Whoa! Hold your horses! It's time for Kootenai for Kids. Your history lesson in just a few minutes without having to sit in that annoying desk. Brought to you by Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village in Pincher Creek, Alberta. By your education coordinator, Ranger Gore. Well, hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV and our Kootenai for Kids program. I hope everybody's staying safe and being well. This is Ranger Gore talking to you in uh, quarantine isolation. It's May 14th, 2020. And um, today's broadcast podcast is going to be very, very uh, simple. I'm just going to read some stories from some books. Actually, from one particular book. It's entitled Souvenirs. And uh, Souvenirs is a, was edited and compiled by a lady by the name of Adrienne Cool in 1980 and it was part of a program from the Alberta Education Department to collect stories and short histories into a publication series and put them in all the schools and libraries of Alberta and that was in honor of uh, Alberta's 75th anniversary in 1980 so something I kind of remember quite well so I've got several of these books and today I'm going to read from four of them. I've just picked random stories. Uh, two of them are native recollections about buffalo hunts. And one is a spiritual story about uh, where the buffalo came from. And uh, I also have a stories about how you find a homestead and what that's all about. And it's a really good, nice lesson as to what homesteading is all about. And it ties into a project that uh, we're going to be doing at Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village over the summer. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And, of course, I also have a story about the building of the Saudi house. And many of you are familiar with the Saudi uh, at Kootenai Brown. And it's uh, had some problems over the years in falling down. But uh, we've been working on rebuilding that. And so now it's been reopened. And see, now you can have a look at what it's like to live inside of a sod house. So that's just four simple stories I'm going to uh, put out there today on today's podcast. Uh, it's just four simple readings. I didn't do a, an awful lot of sound effects or anything like that on it. Uh, there is a little bit of music in behind, but uh, I've been working on some video projects lately, and that's been taking a lot of my time. And the podcasting audio projects, unfortunately, have gone on to the back burner because they take an awful lot of editing time. You, you can almost uh, record one in about half an hour, and then it takes about a day to edit it and take out all the flip-flops and the buzzes and the burps and everything else. But um, we're not, we didn't go through that today with a souvenir, so it's some very rough audio, uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And everybody stay safe and have an awesome spring. Memories of a Mountain Buffalo Jump by James G. McGregor An aging hunter born near Jasper House, 
about 1850, recalls his early experiences in the days when buffalo roamed the foothills. Long ago, he said, in the late 1860s, when I was a boy big enough to start hunting with the men, we drove moose and buffalo over that cliff. The old men and the women and children would start out many days ahead of us and come here in camp. Then a day or so later, some of the men would hurry over the ridge and take their places in two lines, two or three miles long, converging upon this precipice. Their job was to wait till we drove the animals forward and then to make sure that they did not break away to either side, but that they were steadily headed towards their doom. Then after waiting a few days to give them a good start, the rest of us would set out. We planned to scare the animals and to drive them ahead of us. Sometimes we shot a moose or two to eat, but we didn't want to kill more than that. Day by day, shooting off our guns now and then and barking like wolves, we drove the moose and buffalo forward till they met the lines of men sent out ahead. Then as we neared the jump, keeping in touch with each other by hooting like owls, barking like coyotes or howling like wolves, we kept closing in behind the buffalo and kept pressing them on. For days we had been disturbing the game, shooting and howling. Then during the last night when we had many between us and the cliff, then during the last night when we had many between us and the cliff, we kept up this noise. All through the night they were filled with fear. At a daybreak, at a signal from our leader, we all yelled, shot off our guns and rushed forward through the brush, breaking branches and banging the trees with our sticks. The moose and buffalo, nervous after many days' pursuit, would rush forward, only returned as they approached first one line of guards and then the other. The faster they ran, the nearer they came to those cliffs. Then suddenly it was too late. There was no place to go but forward over them. In a short time, all of them would be driven over. We would scramble down through the forests besides the cliffs. While we're doing that, the women and the old people would be busy slitting their throats and cutting them up. I can remember as a little boy camping here with my mother and waiting for the fun to start. At night, far back up on the hill, we could hear the men calling. We knew that at daylight the buffalo would start tumbling down. First one or two moose would come, and then a few buffalo, and then a whole lot of them crashing down onto the rocks over there. It was a time of great excitement as we all yelled and ran in amongst them. Great happiness. In an hour or two, it would all be all over, and we had meat piled everywhere. Some moose, some deer, but mainly buffalo. There were teepees here and teepees there, and all over, close together. The fires blazed while the women cooked moose nose and buffalo hump. Ribs roasted by the fires, marrow bones sizzled in the coals. Great feasting, happiness, and laughter. All day the women cut the meat into strips and hung it on the drying racks, which the little ones fed the fires, which kept the flies away and dried the meat. At night we danced, and all night the drums throbbed here at the mouth of Mum Creek. For many days the women dried the meat and pounded some of it into pemmican. 
The Saskatoons were ripe and the buffalo fat. Then after many days, we packed the horses and set off along the north shore of Rock Lake and up Mowich Creek and then over the pass to Willow Creek and down the Snake Indian River to Jasper House, where the meat would brought many things, tea and tobacco, strouds and needles. The Legend of Mustas the Buffalo by Claire Schuler McKinnon It was again the time of the buffalo hunt, and Niski was very proud to be counted among the hunters this year. Last year they learned that I could hunt too, he thought. And this year, perhaps I can kill as many buffalo as my father. Around the campfires at night, the hunters told stories of their prowess in the hunt, but Niskew kept silent. They must not think I boast, for I am still a young brave, but I would like to hear two bears tell again the story of Mustis. So when it was Niskew's turn to speak, and said he rose up and said, I am but a young hunter. Start over. I am but a young hunter, and only one summer have I hunted with the other braves. Will the great hunter two bears speak for me and tell us the story of Mustis, so that I and the other young braves may know of the kindness of the great spirit Manitou? Two bears was very pleased that Niskew had asked, so he began. Many moons ago, when the world was new, Manitou looked down on his people. They were hungry and cold, and their lodges were just sticks and grass. Not at all like the strong, warm lodges we have now. Even their clothes were different, for the animals that fell before our arrows were not enough to provide for all, and our women had nothing with which to stitch the skins together. Manitou was sorry for his people, and he decided he must give them food and blankets and better teepees. He called an old chief of the tribe to him and said, Old one, what do your people need most of all? And the old one replied, They are hungry. Give us meat. It shall be so, Manitou answered. I shall send many great beasts, larger than any you have ever seen, and they shall feed your people. Old one, Manitou said again, What next do my people need? They need many things, the old one answered. Most of all, we need warm teepees. But we have no pots to cook our meat and no warm clothing to wear. Our women have no way to make our moccasins. Then the beast I shall send shall give you all of these things, meat and clothing and lodges and cooking pots, even needles and threads. But how can one beast give us all this, the old one asked, surprised. You will see, said Manitou, but come with me to this beautiful shining water that I shall name Mustasakagan. Listen, what do you hear, old one? I hear a noise as of thunder beneath the waters, answered the old one. But we have always heard the thunder of the waters here. There must be evil spirits in the lakes, and we fear them. Do not be afraid, Manitou reassured him. It is not an evil spirit that you hear. But the great beast, Mustus, fighting and playing beneath the waters. Manitou clapped his hands. Mustus, come forth, he called, and from the mighty waves there rose up a vast herd of buffalo, huge creatures with shaggy heads and tough matted hides. 
sealed one. Manitou stretched forth his hand. This is the animal that shall feed my people. His skin will make teepees and clothings, even cooking pots, and from the bones and sinews you will make needles and threads. You may make skinning knives and arrowheads with the sharp, flat bones in the hips of this great animal. Oh, thank you, mighty Manitou, the old one began. But once again Manitou stretched forth his hand. As long as my people obey me, then Musta shall roam the plain. But if my people forget and turn their faces from me, then Musta shall go back again beneath the waters of the lake, and you shall see him no more. I have spoken. So saying, Manitou left the old one by the waters of Musta Sagagon, Buffalo Lake, and to this day, if you travel by the shining waters, you will hear the noise of buffalo fighting beneath the waters. And it is the promise of Manitou to his people. As long as we remember, then the buffalo he has sent will feed and clothe us. But Mustus may return again beneath the waters, if we should forget. There was a great silence around the campfire as two bears finished speaking. Then Muskwa, the grandfather of Nisku, an old and honored chief who was known to be very wise, rose up. It is so, for it has so, been said by my father and by my father's father, and they speak truth. Yes, it is so, Mahagan also spoke. But this year there are not many buffalo on the great plain. Can it be that our young braves are forgetting the great spirit, the mighty Manitou? Or is it that the white men have come to the land of the Indian and Manitou is angry? Who knows? Two bears answered. Manitou gave his promise to the old one. Manitou will not forget. If Mustus returns to the waters of Mustus Sakagon, then there will be once again a great hunger among our people. Getting Your Homestead by Henry Copeland When you drive around the prairie these days, you see paved roads, telephones, electric lights, radio, and television. I wish I could stand in front of you and tell you what it was like in 1900 to 1920 when the homesteaders came to take up land. You must all have an idea of the price of a quarter section of land today. But in those days, you could get a quarter section from the government for $10. But you had to live on it for six months of the year for three years. Get 30 acres into crop and build a house worth $300. After that, you were given title to the land. When you decided on what part of the prairie you wanted to see, you had to go to the land office in the nearest town. In my case, I chose Battleford, Saskatchewan. I went to the land office and said that I should like to know where there was land open for entry. They showed me a map with huge tracts all open. I decided I would like to see some land between Payton and Maidstone. I was then given some pieces of paper with squares on them. Each square was a section of land, and the whole thing was a township of six miles square. 
36 sections. They gave me two of these and marked all the quarter sections that were open for entry. A lot of the land belonged to the railway companies as gift for building the railway. Also, the Hudson's Bay Company had some land in every township. You could buy these lands for a lot of money, but all of the other land was open for homesteading. After you got the maps, you planned to go out there and look them over. I decided I would go next morning on the train. Someone told me they, to go to the flag station named Burling, and they also told me to take a lunch. So next morning I boarded the train, and after about one hour the conductor said, You get off in about ten minutes. The train came to a stop, and I got off. And there I was standing all alone with land stretching to the horizon all around me. I saw a wooden boxcar beside the track, which some section men lived in. At the time, they were out working on the track, but I saw a large water tank a little way off, so I went to look at it. There was a fairly old man looking after that water tank, and he was from Holland. He told me he had to pump water from a big slough and keep the tank full, as trains stopped there to fill up with water. He told me there was a man named Ross about a mile and a half north who had a cabin built. He said, you go up and see him. He will help you find the survey posts. So I started to walk. It was a grand country. Grass was coming up all nice and green and there were clumps of birch and poplar trees. And it was like a huge park and you could see for miles. The sun was out and the air was full of wild scents. It made you feel so good. It was like a tonic. I passed several sloughs just loaded with ducks all quacking and swimming around. Also, there was lots of cows and birds of all kinds all singing. The gophers would stand up and whistle at you. I kept on walking, and at last I saw the little cabin that I knew must be the Ross place. Mr. Ross saw me coming. We had a lunch of salt pork and fried potatoes, which tasted real good. And after a smoke, he said, Now we will go and look at the land. Now when the country was surveyed, there was a long iron rod driven in the ground at each corner of the quarter section. Slid over the iron stake was a square tin plate giving you the number and location of each quarter section. It was quite a job finding these as the grass was quite high. Mr. Ross knew where his posts were. At the posts, he put up long poplar poles with white rags on them. You got two of these in line, and you could find the stakes for the next quarter. Well, we walked for miles and looked at lots of land, and I finally picked one. It had some good bluffs of birch and poplar. I thought that was a good place for my cabin. And it would not be healthy from a real healthy. I thought that a good place for my cabin would not be far from a real healthy willow bluff, as this was a good indication of water. There were about 100 acres of open land. We found the corner posts, and I copied the number down. It was the southeast quarter of section 34, township 47, range 22, west of the third meridian. Then we went back to the cabin and had some tea and the lunch I brought, I brought with me. 
After supper, I walked back to the flag station, and the section men flagged the train down for me. I went back to Battleford. In the morning, I went over to the land office, and I paid my $10, and I got my entry receipt. I felt real proud, as I had 160 acres of land, all my own. Building the Saudi by Jocelyn Daw What were the first houses built by the early Canadian pioneers? If your answer is log houses, you are partly right, but not all the Canadian settlers had wood to build log houses. Settlement in Western Canada began in the late 1800s, and this was later than other parts of Canada. The settlers were drawn to the prairies by free land grants as well as the tales of rich agricultural land. When they arrived, they first had to build a house. However, large parts of the prairie are flat and treeless. Lumber in the early years was scarce, but the early pioneers were brave and resourceful people. To build their houses, they used the prairie sod which was at hand. The whole family was needed to build the soddy, even the children were given certain jobs to do. Their first job was to choose a site. The spot was measured and a hole was dug so that the floor was lower than the walls. Sod houses were built in all different shapes and sizes, but most of them had only one big room. In this room, the whole family ate and slept together. The sod was then carefully chosen. If the wrong type of sod were used, the house would fall apart in the storm. The settlers found through experience that dry slough bottoms were the best source for sod, and the slough grass was made of a tough fiber and helped to hold the sod together. The sod was first plowed into long strips, then all the family members trimmed the sod into rectangular blocks, and the blocks were placed like bricks and every third layer was laid crosswise to seal the walls. This method made the walls up to 80 centimeters thick. When the walls were high enough, the roof was made, and the roof was covered with boards or poles and brush, and the settlers then laid blocks on top. Wood was also used for the corners, windows, and doors. This little amount of wood was brought, bought in town, or sometimes the wood came from the small trees and brush bushes which grew by streams and creeks. The final touches were then made to the house, and the walls were sealed on the inside and outside, and local clay was mixed with grasses to plaster the house. The plastered walls were then painted white or wallpapered. Many of the early homesteaders used newspapers to cover the clay walls. The home was heated with stoves. The earliest settlers made stoves of stone and clay, but later settlers used small heaters called Quebec stoves. Once the home was finished, the mothers and daughters made the sod house homey. They put up curtains, decorated the walls with plates and pictures, and made rag rugs for the floors. This was especially important since the settlers often lived in their soddy for many years. Some of the homes were even lucky enough to have a small flower garden outside, and these homesteaders were the envy of everyone. 
All in all, the sod houses took anywhere from a week to a month to build. But over the years, many improvements were made to the house. The first Saudis had no wood floor or glass windows. Most of the homesteaders built wooden floors in the first year they lived in the house. Wood floors kept the house warm and free of mice, insects, and dirt. When glass was available at a town, it was also put into the house. As the family grew in numbers, extra rooms were added to the house. Sometimes an even bigger house was built, and then the old Saudi would be used as a barn. Sod was also used to build post offices, community halls, and sometimes even schools. Can you imagine going to school in a building made of sod? Well, the pioneer children enjoyed their school years in the sod building. For many, school was the only time they saw other children. The buildings were also cool in the summer and warm in the winter, but after a rainstorm, the roof often leaked. This usually meant the school had to be closed for as long as three days at a time. Today, sod houses are no longer built, but there are many people who can remember living in a sod house. Some of the people tell sad stories about the hardships of sod houses. They remember building their houses in the middle of winter in blizzards and snowstorms. In the summer, there were mosquitoes. Many people remember that mice and insects lived in the sod walls. But there are also interesting and sometimes funny stories to tell. One woman told a tale about the family cow, and she climbed up a bank near the sod house and onto the roof to eat the grass. But the cow was so heavy the roof collapsed. She landed in one of the bedrooms, and the cow had to be let out by the front door. Well, that's all for now, folks. Tune in again for more stories from Kootenai for Kids. You'll find us on your favorite podcatcher or set your interwebs on kootenaibrown.ca.